Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Welcome back, listener. This is Lee. And this is Amaya. And you're listening to Fem South. So today we're going to be talking about mothering. We are reading a book in our book club called Mothering Without a Mat, written by Catherine Black. Joining us to talk about this book today is Dr. Katie Penry. And I'm going to go ahead and let her introduce herself and tell our listeners about her practice. So I am a psychoanalytic psychologist, which is really a, a depth-oriented psychology. We talk a lot about attachment, a lot about the origin of self and care. And I also have a clinical practice here. So I'm a psychoanalytic psychologist right here in the Deep South, not too far from where we're recording. And in that practice, I do, I see a lot of adults. I do a lot of parent work, mother work. I tried to deepen my understanding and the breadth of my expertise in the realm of mother and infant psychology. I think that that's probably why we're here today, why I'm here talking about this book. Yeah. And we actually asked you to read this book so that you, uh, you would have a good idea of some of the topics that Catherine Black brings up. What did you think about the book? Oh, man. This book is incredible, absolutely incredible and devastating. I really powerful stuff. I, I, I her research is spot on. Every person that she cites and discusses is exactly who I would have gone to for that discussion. You know, it was nice. It was kind of like following a leader that I was already in step with. It was really nice to kind of track with her as she talks about motherhood because I just recognized the names that she's citing and the research that she's citing. And I just kept being like, yes, yes, yes. So good. So good. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed the book as well. I have children. So it spoke to me. There were a lot of uh, a lot of issues that she raised that I really felt deeply about. And then also having a mother. So I was able to relate to both aspects of that. And what, did, what about you, Amaya? What do you think? Yeah, it was a good book, yet I felt that it was a little too heavy on the anecdotes. Mm. And perhaps there could have been more psychoanalytic theory, background, mm -hmm. history. I did feel like it was missing in, in, in some aspects, yeah. Well, mm -hmm. maybe, we can, maybe we can fix some of that and answer some of your questions and just <laughs> yes. broaden the work or something. Yeah, because yeah, it was, definitely wasn't as academic. It was more anecdotal, Yeah, um, which maybe is why it was, it was a nice... Uh, it was a nice read for me, but yeah, I definitely we can add to some of this other stuff that she doesn't quite dive into. And that's why we have Katie here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's go ahead and dive in. What were some of the topics that she brings up that we want to start talking about? I mean, undermothering, that's an interesting thing. So the whole work, and I know that maybe some of your listeners are, if they're reading it, and if certainly if they're not, are kind of wondering about 
the validity or the importance of emphasizing the mother so much. I know that that is something that feminism sometimes blows back against psychoanalysis in this realm because she is unabashed. I mean, whenever I say this book is great, it's also devastating because she does put a lot of the weight of mental health, lifelong mental health on the mother. And a lot of that is based in the psychoanalytic attachment theory. And so... Can you explain that attachment theory for um, listeners that may not know what that means? All right. So attachment theory, basically, whenever psychoanalysis like had its birth with Freud, everybody knows Freud. For him, the revolution of Darwin was that we were, we've evolved out of a lower species or something. And so he had this drive theory where it was just a lot of original, this, this instinct and we go to our mothers because our mother is meeting our needs and it's a very basic and libidinal animalistic kind of urge that draws us into packs or draws us to one another. Bowlby, who's another psychoanalyst that kind of came after Freud, he said, no, 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 no. The revolution of Darwin was that we are adapting and that we are constantly adapting and that the infant doesn't just go to the mother because the mother has a breast. The infant doesn't just go to her and love her because she meets a need. They are adapted to be together. To be near the mother is to survive. And so it's in our core. And if we don't have that original connection to the mother, then this whole hotbed of neurosis and pain ensues. In other words, the infant can have true mourning when not near the primary caregiver. And so that is basically the birth of attachment theory, because they're saying, no, it isn't this, the breast isn't just a, a drive, something that we need that gets us close to mom. We're saying the breast is a wonderful thing that comes from a, a connection that already, that pre-exists. So going back then to the idea that you raised about her putting all the emphasis on the mother then that would make sense. But then you also said primary caregiver at one point. So making the distinction between the mother and the primary caregiver, a primary caregiver could be someone other than the mother then. I feel this, I feel this way, but I know that Bowlby in some of this, I mean, this book, she doesn't ever talk about primary caregivers. She's almost, she's very explicit about the mother, about calling it a mother. Well, I mean, attachment theory, I think really talks about this bond that mother and child have and the first trauma a child experiences is from the mother. And that can't actually be denied. Mm -hmm. Trauma from birth, trauma from no longer breastfeeding, trauma from moving away from, yes, the primary caretaker, which is the mother. Mm -hmm. And... And that's even just basic biology. But what does that have to do? What kind of impact does that have on the psychology of the child? And then given what kind of mother is in that young child's life, then traumas will ensue that then are carried on into adulthood if they aren't looked at and healed. We're moving away from just the drive instinct and like, I just have needs. I'm an animal and I have needs that I need to get met to we are fundamentally relational and that the original relationship, mother and child is the bedrock of neurosis, development, health, all of this. So I hear what you're saying about there's a, there's a trauma as the, well, actually Winnicott would say as the mother emerges from primary pre from primary maternal preoccupation is what he calls that where the mother and the infant are just like one the baby's able to just 
have what we call primary narcissism where he kind of controls the mom and the mom is his and the breast is his and anything he thinks gets manifest and because she's just so in tune and meeting his need. This is for Winnicott. This is like the the ultimate situation. This is like the way that you want it to be. You want there to be six to eight weeks of this just obsession with the baby. The baby's obsessed with the mother. And then the mother starts to emerge necessarily. She has to meet her own needs. And that break slowly introduces, for instance, the idea that mother is separate from self Mm -hmm. and that I don't control mother. And he would say, oh, whenever a mother does this too rapidly or whenever she is allows herself to be destroyed by the anger of the infant, you know, or whatever it is. And these things are complicated, but that bad things happen. And that is the crux of attachment theory is that there is a bond with mother and child that is just the soil for everything else. So black then is bringing in the idea are the problems that arise when that attachment doesn't happen instantly right. for women or maybe well, at various levels. It could be instantaneously women, of course, who have uh, problems with postpartum depression, but then also throughout the child's life in various ways, how that women become uh, as mothers become more separated from that what she would call is a basically a myth of maternal instinct, right? Because she begins to also look at this myth of maternal instinct that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it very seems end, as yeah. though that myth of maternal instinct is really sort of rooted in some of these early psychoanalysis theories and maybe even evolutionary theories and maybe even right. Kind of the, the Darwin right? thing. This is what I'm saying. Bowlby's picking up on the Darwin thing that like, oh, no, the mother and child are instinctually drawn together. But we also so what happens. Yeah, we also covered this then in our last book when we talked about maternal instincts and like what how bonds are created with animal species. And there were certain instances where, you know, um, the mother maybe had died. I mean, and look at women dying at childbirth. And right. Who for takes sure. on responsibility for, sure. for, for the sure. child then. But even in the animal species, some men, males took on the primary role. So very few starts Lee. to put, I, mean, I know that, but Lee, I know we like, like to talk about the exceptions <laughs> to the rule, but actually right. the rule is, and biology says that the, the woman is the primary caretaker from you know, the point of birth. Right. And, and, I'm not, I mean, yeah, I'm not trying to disregard that. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is going back to the idea that she puts the weight of responsibility for a child's psychological development completely on the mother is interesting because she's basing it on all of these other theories, right? Is that like what I'm trying to say? Like some feminist theorists would say, okay, okay, this is just another way to blame the psychosis of a man on a woman. But, you know, it's um, no one's ever been really afraid of, of like nailing a woman for being crazy. <laughs> but like a man, it's kind of nice to be able to say, oh, well, you know, ultimately it's his mom's fault. And so this is a this is a critique of the attachment theory that we're, I was just trying to touch on. And I felt that in a lot of what she was writing. And I kept wanting to say primary caregiver and give let's give space for some other connection in the child's life other than just the mother. I feel that. But then I also feel even in myself, somebody who does work, who has worked when my children were really young, that there is something 
undeniable about the power and impact of a mother, right. you know, and so we're all struggling with that. Yeah, because if it is so powerful and impactful, the mother bears all this responsibility because of biological necessity, then it still is a weight of responsibility that we're putting solely on the woman. And I don't know if that's fair for the woman, you know, is right. that ultimately sometimes fair? it doesn't feel fair. Are men, are men going through postpartum depression? Women are going through postpartum depression. And so it doesn't seem like it's fair. And then it doesn't open up the discussion about what does it, what is a man's responsibility then in those early to act? So they would say that the man's responsibility, the village responsibility is to make the dyad. So Winnicott would say there's no such thing as an infant. There's only mother and baby. The infant doesn't exist outside the mother. The purpose of the village and the husband is to make sure the dyad can do it. You clean the house. You do the dishes. You do everything else. You make sure she rests. When she has a breast infection, clear the house out, put the baby in the bed with the mother, and you do everything else. I mean, you know, this is these, these just these kind of things. It does, it doesn't negate the importance of the primary breadwinner or the secondary caregiver. It would say that all these other things are necessary too. But the part of me would love to say that, is it a burden? Is it a burden to put the weight of being primary caregiver entirely on the mother? And when can the mother emerge? And this is hard. This is real stuff. Black doesn't disregard the fact that community is important. At the end of her book, mm -hmm. she talks about that. Yeah. She says that mothers aren't alone, and yet they have been. Yeah. And so this has been one of the problems in our society is that women are so isolated, and they don't have community right. to support the rearing of their children. Mm -hmm. and, and we put all that on ourselves. And I I wonder, actually, you know, as we talk about this, if my resistance to, to putting the weight on the woman is because maybe the community can't support it. Not because the woman can't support it, not because I can't support it, because but because the idea of looking some of the women I know in the face and saying, it's all on you, sis, feels like too much because I know that she doesn't have a household, a home, and a community that's going to make that really possible for her. Right. Or she may also be trying to get back to work yeah and that's a whole nother situation yeah this is you know it's real stuff i kept saying while i was reading the book what about the woman who's like needing to get back to work? What about the woman who wants to have a full and robust sense of self and is really scared to say that she's going to invite something else into her own self, her own understanding of self? This is why it's important that we should actually talk about some of these traumas that happen from a psychology mm -hmm. standpoint. Mm -hmm. Sure, go ahead. From an attachment theory standpoint. I remember you were saying, Katie, that psychology was a first science that said mother, the mother was central. This is a, a scientific perspective looking at how children are affected by early circumstances. And this is fairly new in psychology that we're looking oh, at this Oh, mind-blowing. Right. And it's always changing and it's growing. But I think these are valuable concepts to look at, you know, mm -hmm. like a secure attachment versus a non-secure attachment. Right. And what does it look like for a non-secure attachment where the child isn't, his or her needs aren't being met, according to maybe you want to use Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. that, you know, it's not just about physical needs. Physical needs come yes. first, of course, yes. but then what yes. happens after that? And she talks about because of our culture, because of women having to work, because of women having children too young, because of these constraints on women, they can't actually show up mm -hmm. in the ways that they need mm -hmm. to, to fulfill this secure attachment mm -hmm. that children need. They may be able to feed them. They may be able to, you know, provide them with a bed. But mm -hmm. beyond that, mm -hmm. they can't do it. 
Right. Yeah. Good point, Amaya. I remember careening towards the birth of my first child. I mean, with my heels in the ground, like, huh, like I was about to go off a cliff and afraid that I wouldn't be able to fall into it, that I wouldn't be able to give myself into the needs of this this child that I wouldn't be able to be lost in it because what if it swallowed me I remember that feeling like I'm about to go into an abyss it's going to swallow me necessarily and then what if I can't come back it is a process to trust I mean and it happened I did totally fall in sync with her and it worked but I remember that and I was in my own analysis at the, at, at the time, my own doing a lot of my own work. And so I was like able to process all that and get the reassurance that I need because I had language to talk about that fear. But I know a lot of women really don't. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the things that Black is really diving into. Is what are your needs as a mother? What are your fears? What are your needs as a child? What was your experience of your mother? How how can we flush flush out all those, um, those traumas that happen from an unavailable mother too? Yeah. I think that's what she really focuses on more than anything is that this isn't just all women's experience necessarily. This she's really speaking to women who were under mothered Mm -hmm. themselves so that when they do become mothers and they are faced with trying to give the child all of the needs, the emotional needs to meet the child's emotional needs. How does she do that if those needs were never met for her by her own mother? And you know, what kind of fears does she have going into motherhood? That fact that motherhood really forces a woman to address this kind of trauma for the first time, maybe. Mm-hmm. Because now they have the responsibility mm-hmm. to not do that to their child or whatever it was that their mother did to them, whatever traumas they experienced, to not impass that onto their own child. Mm-hmm. And that's a real fear that I think a lot of women have. Mm-hmm. If they're aware of it. Mm-hmm. And this and this is the thing, you know, some of us don't actually have an awareness that the things that we're experiencing in our lives, the problems, the conflicts, the repeating behaviors have been passed down through the generations. We're actually carrying the traumas of our ancestors. And very few of us, unless we have a psychologist in our lives or we've done self-study, look back at our past in order to heal. It's painful. It's difficult. And so Black is saying that this is very, very important in order for us to raise healthy children into adults in this world, mothers need to be able to look back at their past traumas and heal. I just want to read this statistic she gave. Was 70% of parents who were abused as children were suspected to be abusers themselves. And that's shocking. That's really shocking. I would love, Katie, to talk about trauma. And I know you had talked Before we started recording, you had told me about the epigenetics of trauma. Mm. And if you wouldn't mind talking about this, because this is sort of what Black is inferring, that we're we're inheriting this trauma from our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And how do we heal it? And what is trauma versus abuse? She specifically used the word abusers in here. Right. But I, I do want to distinguish abuse from trauma, if you oh, gosh. And maybe talk about the epigenetics of trauma. So whenever I hear her talk about these things that you've just said about the the way an abused child often will become an abuser in some way, maybe that's more of an explicit or obvious way that trauma can get passed down because it's it's it happens sometimes pre-verbally. It happens in our first relationship to our to our caregivers. There's a whole lot of 
things that might go into that, like coping is never modeled, um, stepping away is never modeled, uh, mindfulness, breathing. There are different things that happen in the context of a relationship with that first relationship. And maybe if, and if that relationship is abusive, that we're just not learning. So it's also a skills deficit in, in what she's saying. It's not just the epigenetics necessarily, which I'm going to get into. There's also a major, major skills deficit because she's a real advocate for learning what and processing all your memories as, as, as much as seems relevant of your early childhood and maybe listening to the stories of your birth, asking your ancestors, asking your parents, what was it like to give birth to me my first several months? And you're listening for the things of like, oh, you were just so withdrawn. You didn't want anything to do with me. Or, oh, it was very hard for me. I was very depressed. And you're tuning into these things. And then even as you, and maybe you're putting them together with some of the, your childhood experiences where you're getting abused for would call it a repetition compulsion. So it's a little bit different from epigenetics where it's like you, this thing happened to you and you are almost compelled to repeat it. Because that was your modeling. Because that was your modeling. Epigenetics, so for instance, a great uh, example of this is the Holocaust where you can find genetic markers in the great grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. You can see the Holocaust on their in their genome. It's crazy. And um, I'm not really familiar about the way the maternal relationship might be epigenetic in that same fashion. But I do like... Can I interject real quick yeah. right there? Because yeah. something we speak about on this podcast all the time about women's history of oppression mm-hmm. under patriarchy. Yes, 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 yes. You know, thousands of years of this kind of trauma, how can that not be passed down epigenetically? Mm-hmm. And then what is, I guess for me, I, what is the difference then between epigenetic transmission of trauma and just um, cultural yeah right is there a separation i don't know because culture has an effect on our genome evidence in the genome and the other one we can't quite identify it well and evolutionary perspective we're not separate from our culture right so our biology is affected by our environment our environment is culture right you don't have to go that far back to find you know, trauma, like your mother's mother could be the source of trauma. Mm. And then, and that may not necessarily be evidenced by genomes or genetic markers, but it's there Mm. because the way that your mother was treated by her mother may be influencing the way that she treated you and the same problems. And you can keep going further back and back and back. So it's, it's real experience, but then it's also cultural at the same time. And I think this is what Katie's saying about mm-hmm. epigenetics is that events in our history, which are culturally related, are actually, yeah, influencing our biology. Interesting. While we were talking, Amaya, I was actually looking at you and feeling like you were trying to extend grace to your ancestors and extending grace to the mothers who may be passing down something that was passed down to them. And I thought, oh, you know what? We're in a realm where we're talking about epigenetics and we're talking about all this big, heady stuff, but really at the very, like, in between you and me is just this, can we blame them for the pain? And how can we be gracious? So whether or not it's epigenetic in their genome or not, there is something cultural about where we are right now and the way it isn't just a bad mother, a not good enough mother, a not ordinary enough mother, whatever it is. It can be deeply painful, but it behooves us to ask who mothered her 
and then who mothered that one? Exactly. And then who mothered yeah. that one? Well, yeah, that was the point that I was trying to make with, you know, it can just be as simple as realizing that your mother's mother had an effect on her. And you can keep tracing that further back, but most people are dealing with what they're aware of, mm-hmm. which is usually their mother, maybe their mother's mother, and mm-hmm. maybe one step beyond Mm -hmm. that right Mm -hmm. but those are real experiences those are real stories that are told to us so we can kind of give that a little bit more context so coming back to whether or not we blame I mean that's a really great point that I really want to keep talking about because blaming the mother well first of all blaming just the mother as if the mother is the again going back to this as if it all rests on the shoulders of the mother whatever Mm. trauma the person has experienced and um and not the culture and not the other parental figure in the child's life blaming it all on the mother that's a heavy weight to give a woman so there's that but then also when we blame and i think she speaks to this as well when we just blame and we don't try to understand understand our mother's experience, understand the culture. She doesn't really talk enough, in my opinion, about the culture of these women, what they were experiencing, why they might be experiencing certain attitudes about motherhood at that time. It's so important to understand how women historically, socially thought about motherhood and was experiencing motherhood and what kind of resources they had available to them to understand their psychosis. And why they might be passing on or not being a good mother or however you want to say it, passing on trauma to the child. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. It's all connected. What I like what she says as well at the end of the book is that despite all of this trauma being passed down, a simple acknowledgement, a look back at our past is enough to then build resilience. Mm for children to press forward, move forward beyond these initial traumas and that things can change by simply acknowledging where we've come from, which is so hopeful. I agree. I think that I agree. There's so much hope in that and that you don't have to, you can acknowledge without denigrating. You can say, "Hmm, you know what? My mother did have a hard time mothering me. That's not true. My mother was really attentive. Just in case she's listening, I want you to know, Mom, I love you. But for the woman who has to acknowledge this to herself, she can say, I love my mother. My mother was a good mother. She had some serious depression, I think, and I remember her really being flat, unaffected, not moving her face or not being really responsive. And I just, I want to wonder with a professional what that felt like and what that might have been like for a small child. I love her. These things I can acknowledge without it taking that away. A lot of women really feel scared to do that, to acknowledge um, women and men, to acknowledge men, oh man, to acknowledge the shortcoming of a father. I mean, this is hard for a lot of, for just kids, no matter how old you are. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit more? And since you have real experience with clients and, you know, with your work and your studies, like, what does that look like in the world? Well, it looks like somebody having maybe been really injured, deeply injured, and not being able to um, to acknowledge that injury because still, that's my primary attachment figure. And if she's bad, things might all fall apart. And you want to say, well, let's stop being so binary. Let's stop being all, she's all good or she's all bad. But that acknowledgement is really tough 
because we don't want to lose what shaky ground we might have because we've had, maybe those kids in particular have had the experience of an insecure base. Maybe they fought their whole life to kind of get to a place of security. And now looking back and calling what's blue, blue, calling, calling something for what it is. That's just really threatening. In my office, it looks like somebody that, like I said, has maybe been abused and absolutely cannot acknowledge it, can tell the stories, but cannot call it abuse, cannot call it bad, cannot call it inadequate. And so you're using the word abuse versus trauma. Okay. Yeah. And you asked me this earlier, the difference between abuse and trauma. I mean, there is, I mean, you can have these little micro traumas or I'm familiar with some of the criticisms of like the micro trauma thing. Like that is such a weird thing to me, even to hear myself saying it. But And what does that mean exactly? You know, a microaggression that it really stops us from, I've heard the critique that it kind of stops us from moving forward because we really want to pathologize some of these necessary failures that happened between us. And psychologists, especially psychoanalysts, they might call it the emergence of mother is the child's first trauma. Well, let's say that that's a very different trauma than some, a, a, a child that was physically struck over and over by their parents. You see what I'm saying? So trauma is like a really abuse. big <laughs> trauma is a really big umbrella term, and there's a lot that can be under trauma. It can be a micro trauma, and it can all so be it abuse. seems like we're all just like <laughs> so it seems. No, seriously, I mean the world is really changing. Like this, the way our language is evolving around trauma is changing like quicker than it. You feel like it's really hard to keep up with. But yeah, I think that you're right about that. I mean, you have these little, now that we're all more familiar with the term trauma, and that whenever I say trauma, we might be thinking of war trauma, or we might be thinking of assault, or something, I want to be really careful about calling the emergence of a mother a trauma, because I, here's what, honestly, if I was like, get down into my guts about it, whenever I heard you saying this earlier about the trauma of the emerging mother, I was thinking, oh, man, dear mom that's sitting at home listening to us feeling like she needs to go back to work, feeling like she needs to wash her hair today and her baby's colicky, do it. You won't be traumatizing your baby. I just felt like that has to be said. And even if it is a kind of trauma, it is necessary. The mother and child have to become separate. And it is kind of a tearing. And you get kids taking transitional objects, something that they can control. Give them control of a blanket. Give them control of something else, but they can't always control you. And that experience will be hard for them. And they will be anger and they will anger at you. They might even aggress at you. Survive. Keep persisting because it's a necessary, quote, trauma. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I'm just trying to be careful I, about this language. It's interesting because as soon as you start talking in that way, I think, well, yeah, because mothers feel guilty. You know, they, that that separation is is a source of guilt for many mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I felt that myself. Every time I had to let go, I felt guilty about it. But to know that you're not creating trauma, or maybe you are creating trauma, but what you're saying is that the trauma is necessary for growth. Mm -hmm. That's really different from the undermothered and the abusive, which is where this book sits right. kind of squarely. Am I right there? Yeah, yeah. And I still think that there is a lot of confusion about how to use the word trauma, when to use it. And maybe that's still up for debate. I mean, in yeah. the psychology world, 
we have an understanding of it that's a little bit different in, you know, the rest of the world. Trauma seems like abuse, yet psychologists talk about trauma from here to there. And <laughs> She's holding her hands like on opposite really? sides of the room. <laughs> and, and it gets really tricky. It gets really tricky. Yeah, it's so funny. I had this conversation with my partner the other day about what's trauma, you know? I felt we were arguing about chores and I knew that my feeling about egalitarianism in the household comes from deep within me from watching my parents and their relationship. I have deep emotional response to this. And I could only say this is trauma because it feels like trauma to me. I don't have another word for that. But I I was reacting like very verbal memories. The memories before we had language to call it. Well, it just feels. Yeah, it just feels like something. It just feels. Now, and it's and he and his response is just get over it. You know, why are you so emotional about this? And of course, I'm like, but I am emotional. Like I really am. It's buried. It comes from like a childhood experience. You know. So what do you call that? That's not exactly. Is that like what you might refer to as like a micro trauma? I'm gonna listen back to this and I, the word and whatever it is is gonna be. <laughs> like right on the tip of my tongue and I'm going to know and maybe psychology has already figured this out but what comes to my mind is that we label experiences as they happen and when they happen well so whenever you're eight years old and before think about how limited your vocabulary was so it's like you don't have any kind of language you never did the work to label that experience because what would you have called it you probably just played with it and felt it and so we still do have these pre-verbal experiences that are just in our guts and they put our hair up and they make us fight and we don't really have a way to label it because the person that's dealing with that is eight years old. I, I think this book has so much good stuff and I don't want to get too heady. And the point is that eight-year-old and why it becomes traumatic is because that eight-year-old doesn't have any agency. So they are subjected to the behaviors of their caretakers. And in that moment, because they don't feel safe and they don't have any agency to take care of themselves, then what they're experiencing does become a trauma. And because they can't physically do anything to keep themselves safe, they psychologically tell themselves something and then hold on to a story about how they're going to keep themselves safe by believing this story. Oh, that's right? interesting. So, they're like laying a schema or a story in their head and they're going to believe right. this thing and then they're going to build a world around it that kind of yes. functions according to the rules that survived the situation. Yes. Okay. Can I also just say that the trauma that I'm referring to isn't just an eight-year-old, my eight-year-old self. It was an experience that happened when I did have a language for it. But yeah, speaking to what you're saying is that I think that because I didn't have any agency in that experience, because I witnessed not something that happened directly to me, something that was happening to my own mother and feeling empathy towards her experience made me then grow up and feel, first of all, like I never want to put myself in that situation and feel what I thought she was feeling, which was traumatic. And so when I do experience that as an adult, it feels like something that is so deep that I cannot easily control. So that's why I kept coming back to my partner and saying, well, this feels like trauma to me. So it's not easy for me to just- But it's not even yours, it's your mother's. It's my mother's. Yeah, it's the but depth it's of mine, empathy. But it is mine. Isn't that interesting? It this informs is good. my life. It informs the way that I uh, respond to certain things. It is mine. It's hers it's and it's mine. It's your experience. So then it's I keep coming back we'll to say. this idea of generational trauma. 
I was reacting to something that was happening to her. She, it was probably happening to her as a result of her own experiences with her mother and so forth and so forth, but also because of the cultural relationships between men and women in the household. And it's just, there's so many layers here, but it feels, but I feel it, it's real. It's not like in my head, this isn't intellectual. This is like a real feeling. It's the story at that moment that you saw that and you felt unsafe, but unable to do anything. It's that story you created for yourself, that promise to yourself that I will never put myself in a situation where a man doesn't respect equal household sharing or chore sharing, right? Or something like that. Yet, guess what? You held on to that. I will never have this relationship And then guess what you attract? That relationship again and again and again until we can look at that initial story and say, I'm going to rewrite the story for myself. I'm going to look at this promise, this vow, and I am going to change it into something that I do want instead of something that I don't want. Yeah. And it's a mystery, sort of, how that works. Well, the, you know, you can do it in the energy space. This is the, what I do in my, in my work as a coach, is we look at initial traumas, find what that vow is, that promise is, and we rewrite the vow. Yeah, that's nice. Isn't that interesting? It is. It is. It's fascinating. Yeah. I love that. And coming back to the book, you know, she says that this is what women, when they have their children, when they become mothers themselves, this is the process that they go through. Because many women tell themselves, if they've gone through trauma with their own mother or parents, I'm not going to do that again. I don't want to do that to my own children. Right? That's the story. And then when we have our children, we find ourselves doing the very thing that we said we would not do. Because we're still struggling with whatever that is, which is so deep. You know, it's it's not in the head, it's in the heart. Okay, again, let's touch on why I'm uncomfortable with the use of the word trauma here. Okay. It's because I don't want to exclude the everyday woman out there who thinks about trauma and thinks about a very abusive and aggressive, maybe hitting, cussing at you, denigrating your, you know, your understanding. Undermothering can just be she wasn't available. She wasn't attuned. She called everything that was mine hers. These little ways, these little ruptures. We could maybe call them ruptures and maybe I'd be more comfortable. Yeah, what's, an, what's another word though? That's the thing. Maybe we just need to have another word. I just want the, the listener to we... know. Don't don't listen to us talking about this and say, you know what? I'm not even going to do the work to remember my childhood because she never hit me. Do the work, do the work, wonder. You don't have a whole lot to lose by just wondering at your past. Do it anyway. Right. Yeah, don't don't not do this work because, because people, we're ta- we're using the word trauma. People might be afraid because yeah. they might like not I'm gonna f- be a great mom because this trauma, quote trauma never happened to me. It's still worth experience. It's still worth thinking through. So there needs to be a word that defines the more subtle experiences that aren't so... That are everyday, the everyday failings mm-hmm. that just are too we many. We oftentimes lump it up, lump, lump all of that into one word, trauma. I hadn't really We're not the that. only ones. This is actually what's <laughs> happening in the field of psychology. So it's either we change the field of psychology or we educate the masses on what trauma is. What is it? from an anecdotal, personal perspective that felt traumatic in your life, that then, you know, left residue that carried through to your relationships in adulthood that you're still struggling with. Like, what do you consider to be traumatic? And I think that's kind of the only way we can look at this, really, is to ask people individually, what is your experience of trauma? 
And what are you still working through? Yeah. And I will speak to various levels of trauma and how confusing it can be again through experience. You know, I experienced a relationship where I couldn't easily ask for help because it wasn't it wasn't physical abuse. There was verbal abuse and it was very subtle. So the subtlety there, not being able to speak to the subtlety was really difficult because I didn't have a way to voice it. It didn't seem real enough to do anything about or to seek help for. Mm -hmm. Looking back on it now, had I been able to say, this is traumatic. It may not be somebody slapped me across the face or hit me or whatever that may, the case may be. It was very subtle, mm -hmm. very like mentally, mm -hmm. um, what's the word? Um, manipulative. Manipulative. It changed you. It changed, it changed you. me. Yeah. It affects me still. I have deep emotion around that so what am I supposed to call that if I can't call that trauma is my question I'm wondering if my reluctance that I'm expressing here is feeling really invalidating it might be yeah I don't know that's I mean that's the question right maybe we don't yeah. have an answer to this question but like it does seem a little invalidating. the goal is certainly not to invalidate you or your experience of trauma or your desire to really help women acknowledge something important I'd also I want to do that yes and I also want to make sure people who are really scared to use this language, because that is a large group. I do I do have those people represented in my clientele who are really so afraid of this word that they aren't looking honestly. So I just want to make sure. Yeah, good I don't point. want you to feel invalidated at all. But I also want those people who aren't who aren't searching because they're afraid of this this classification. Right. Good point. So then, how yeah. in your practice do you sort of coddle them in such a way? to allow them to face some of these fears that they're afraid to look at, which we're calling traumas, but you might call something else. Right. Well, uh, do you have a few years you want to get your back? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is that, that's kind of the answer. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just work. It's work and a lot of theory and supervision. And, just, and intuition. You yeah. intuit where they are. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully you can meet them there. Yeah. The mothering, that is the part of psychotherapy that is mothering, where I'm willing to just let you be your own human. And then I'm just going to try and see it as honestly as I can see it without putting me into your experience. Mm. And let's let you be playful and sometimes be angry and sometimes be resistant. And I'm just going to keep naming it for you until you see it, until you see you come to it yourself. This is, this is the part that's mothering. And that, to me, is her major loss, this black lady whenever she talks about her experience her the death of her mother and then her experience of her grandmother never really just seeing her you know her coming to her grandmother maybe whenever she lost her virginity or she was dating or I don't remember what it was and the grandma says I'm not doing this with you I already did this once before or um ma telling her grandmother I'm really afraid and the grandmother saying oh you're not afraid it's like I needed somebody just to kind of see it yeah without judgment yeah, that's a, a great thing that she does talk about with children is validating emotions because one of the reasons why we might val not validate our children's emotions in that way is A, we don't really have the practice. We don't know how. Um, it wasn't modeled for us from our own parenting, but validating emotion. I love her so hard to do as a parent. I struggle with that because it was not modeled for me, but I'm working on it. Mm. Just trying to let my children have their emotion and not try to undermine it or quickly get rid of it or, you know, because 
it sometimes, especially when it's expressed through anger, can be very challenging. I loved her discussion of validating and the, the invalidating parent that's just con- consistently invalidating. Why do we do that? Can you just tolerate that? Can you let your child be afraid? Can you tell your child, yeah, I can see that you're really angry. And you know what? I think you're really angry at me. And let them play in that space. Play with their different emotions and let them be real. Trying to recall some of the beautiful things that her really cool observations about that. Why why some mothers have an incredibly hard time doing that. Well, well one, yeah, <laughs> one, because they never received it themselves. So how can For they sure. give what they didn't receive? Another is emotional maturity. I mean, how can you, if you judge anger, fear, and sadness to be bad emotions, then you're going to try and change that in your child or anyone else that expresses it, right? But emotional maturity would teach you that they're all valid. Yes. And I'm going to bring a third voice to this. Speaking from the experience of a single mother who is exhausted, exhaustion, makes these things really challenging. And I think some women I know, speaking personally, experience overwhelming sense of having too much on their plate, not being able, because this kind of thing takes time. And being able to take that time is important. Yes. Whenever you are careening towards the end of a day, Mm -hmm. and you've had a, and you're hard, it's, it's been hard, and you're tired, and your child comes to you, second time you've put into bed, comes out of bed again and says, Mom, I'm really afraid. Come on. The third and the fourth time they come out of bed. You're like, get back in bed. It doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. How afraid you are. You... Because you're desperate to go to sleep. Because you're desperate. You're desperate for that hour that you get to yourself before you go to you sleep. You need it. You need it. Can I ask you a question about that? Because sure. when you come home and you're tired and perhaps you get angry, what do you do to yourself? Do you acknowledge that you're angry or frustrated or tired or do you judge yourself for not being a good mother? Like, are you able to ask, say to your child, I am so angry right now because yeah. I'm tired and I'm exhausted. And are you okay with that? Sometimes I can. I can come and I can speak to it with my children and speak honestly and say, I'm really tired. I've hit a wall now that they're older. But when they're young, you can't you can't say that really because they don't really understand. I mean, I guess you can say that, but whether or not they're going to understand and hear you is a whole nother story when they're two and three years old. These are the times when women are really stressed and challenged because they're not sleeping through the night. Possibly they may have, they may be working. They, and if, again, if they're doing this on their own, if they're single, then it's even, even more exhausting. So there's a point though, where I get to, and I have gotten to this point many times where I can't do anything. I can't do anything other than just like check out. Because I don't even have the energy to explain my, my tiredness to a child and try to get them to understand. You know what I mean? Does that answer your question? It's various levels. But I try. Amaya, I love what you're saying about organizing your experience yes. and how important that is just as a psychologically healthy human to come in and say, I'm very, I love the idea of threshold. And I talk to my clients about this a lot, giving yourself thresholds, thresholds into the day, whether it's 30 minutes before your kids wake up, whether it's five minutes before you cross the door into the kitchen, whatever it is, whenever you're, you're about to enter a new experience, when you have just like a little bit of time to consolidate your experience and process how, you know, do a body scan. How are you feeling? How are you thinking? Mothers also are doing this 
for small children. They're not just organizing their experience. They're also organizing the experience of a child. So I love the idea of you being of someone being really gracious and organizing the child's experience and being really non-judgmental. You know what? You're really angry today and you're really tired. That's such a, such a generous and gracious. I mean, so such a gracious position. I just think it's so challenging sometimes. Well, if you can't do it for yourself, but if we you, have to start with us. If you absolutely. don't have yeah. self-awareness of your own, emotional experience and you know the ability to speak to that then how can you have that for a child and this is what black is saying which is so important is like it's not about being the perfect mother right at all no it's It's actually about being perfectly imperfect and just being aware of that yeah and i can say that i was not probably aware when i was raising children when my children were really young i didn't have the self-awareness that i have now this is the problem with people having children too young when they don't know themselves. But I was 30. They, it's still young. <laughs> it's, not, it's still young. It is still young. <laughs> Tell me how you were in your 20s. Tell me when you finally woke up, right, to who you really were at, at the core. I mean, some of us have never really done that, up. right? <laughs> I mean, most people, when you talk about therapy, they roll their eyes. And it's like, um, actually, therapy is like fundamental in evolution in you growing up, waking up, showing up in your life, like get to know who you are. People in our world don't do the work. Work, and Katie knows this, she does this for a living, to develop self-awareness right. in our own experience so we can actually raise children right. that are healthy. It does. It takes support too, you know, it takes I remember thinking, I wish there were parenting groups or um, parenting classes. I mean, we had mommy groups. I could go hang out with a bunch of moms and we could talk about things, but I didn't have real good, solid information. At least I didn't feel like it at the time. And still, like even in this area, there's not a lot of parenting classes teaching parents how to parent. And um, so I just like would read books and books and books and books. But I was desperate for parenting advice and I wasn't taking care of myself because I didn't at that time when I was younger see that I, you know, taking care of myself was necessary. Just like what you're saying. It Mm -hmm. is. This is, I told you earlier when we were having coffee that I'm in the middle of starting my own podcast because of this. There is a ton of, there are a ton of parenting podcasts. There's one that I actually really like. The rest of them, I'm just like, man, I need more uh like more of this well-rounded i don't just want the child to be the center of the universe the child has to be the family the dyad needs to be the center and we need more advice it's not just advice but also experiential and that prioritizes the mother not as an end of itself but as a necessary order so the child can ultimately have the child's best experience Do you know what I'm saying? And there isn't very much out there like that. It's really hard to find the kind of support and wisdom that we need sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. I felt like it was hard at the time when I had young children. Definitely. And this is why we're doing this as well. Mm -hmm. Education, support, Mm -hmm. inspiration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is also why we're speaking to women's experience in the South, because one of the things I wanted to ask you, Katie, are what are some of the issues that you see that are particular to women in the South? 
Okay, great. So working in the South that is challenging, I would say education is so huge and not just woman to woman, but also systemically and politically are the people who make policies. This is why we have to elevate more women, more people of color, because we meet, we need more diversity of experience and insight. Because right now, most of the policies that are being made about women, whether it be birthing policy, healthcare and support policies, any of these things, they don't really hold the best interest down here. It's Whenever you start talking to politicians about legislation for women and infants, it's just like talking to a beanbag. Do you know? What? I mean, they yeah. do not think about it. And I'm saying, listen, infant mortality is double right here in this part of the world than it is in other parts of just down the road in America. Here are some really basic things that we can change. They just don't even process it. I say, listen, every dollar that you invest in women and infant, you get $6 on the back end in revenue from less postpartum depression, more work availability, less drain on the healthcare system. All of these things really matter. Start investing in women and children and really your debt the state debt, the burden of the political system and the federal, like the finances will lift. More women will be viable and contributive. More children will be available and less of a drain on the healthcare system because we know that an undermother child doesn't just have psychological problems. They also have major health problems. Undersupported women have major health problems. And this people in the South down here need to do more. They do. And I, I hate to like, feel, I, I'm going to stop right here because I know I feel like I'm on a soapbox, but it is not good. And that infant mortality rate, by the way, is so we're at maybe in Mobile. I'm not going to say the numbers because it's been probably a year and a half since I've checked. But I will say they're really high for white women. They're double for black women. So now we have all sorts of issues going on. Where we really need advocates. We really need people pushing policy change, pushing good research up into the hands of our legislatures so they can make the right decisions, where to put state dollars, federal funding into hospitals, into health care, so that more children can be viable, can be healthy, and contribute. Into so clinics. Yeah. Free clinics. Oh, my gosh. The yes. women's health clinics in Mobile and Pensacola, they're, they're not even available for women who need them. What are women to do? Right. Because the there's a misunderstanding about what those free clinics, what they're really capable of doing and how important they are, not just to the fetus, but to the viability of the mother and the child. One of the many, many ways that we don't support women in the South is by really making gestation primary. But after birth is very important. And there are some easy, practical and cheap things that we can do. If you're listening and you're a legislator, you can call me. We'll talk about the details of this because really it's not complicated. I know that Katie has a blog and she's been doing a lot of writing. So we'll see about posting some of her stuff. I've loved this. Thank you, Katie, so yeah, much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. I hope that we covered uh, as much as we can. And I hope that I get to come back and talk with you too. You guys are kind of powerhouses. So are you. Glad that we have somebody like you in Fairhope. You guys are busy and tired. You need people that are out of the infant trenches to fight for you. Right. That's it. That's why we're here. All right. Thank you for joining us. If you want to see our book review on Mothering Without a Map, that will be up soon on our website. Check out our Facebook page at FemSouth, Instagram. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes. 
and Spotify. Facebook. Spotify. <laughs> yeah. Until next time, you're on Fem South. South.